0: One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled." They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work.
1: You may be seated. Man, that's just one of those feel-good passages, right? Gotta love that. Um, good morning, my name is Chris. Uh, if we haven't had the uh, chance uh, to to meet yet, it's uh, good to be with you and just open up God's word together. Um, and... Uh, uh, but truthfully, like one of the reasons that I love going through books of the Bible like we're doing right now through the book of Titus is that it forces us uh, to really sit with and walk through and wrestle with uh, maybe some of the passages of scriptures like this one uh, that maybe don't land or sound as pretty to our 21st century Western ears but to trust that this is the word of God and that God has something for us to, to learn and to come home uh, back home with and, and, and to uh, uh, just impact our heart. And so with a passage like this one today about um, uh, uh, referencing these empty talkers that need to be silenced and rebuked like at first, passages like this kind of seem like doomy and gloomy, right? But before we conclude this text is maybe harsh or mean, I want you to consider that sometimes the most compassionate thing that you or I can do is to confront someone. Like sometimes that's the most compassionate thing that we can do, especially if it's a life or death situation at hand, right? Sometimes it's the life or death situation like we're going to see in a moment uh, as the sort of situation going on in in this text in Titus chapter 1. And so if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus. We're going to be finishing up chapter one today of Titus in our series. Uh, Would you just pray with me right now? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for just the opportunity that we have uh, to open your word, uh, to hear from your spirit through the words of this book, and uh, I pray, God, that... uh, you would just do something supernatural in us this morning. That the words that I speak, the words of my mouth, the meditations and the learnings in all of our hearts and our minds would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, our uh, text this week, the end of chapter one, it's important for us to recognize that it actually continues from the previous verses. It continues from last week's sermon. Paul, at this point, is unpacking to his protege, Titus, the qualities that should be true for a new pastor or an elder, right? The background here is that Paul and Titus were planting churches, they are preaching the gospel in the island of Crete, but these new churches are lacking some structure, uh, they're not fully uh, established yet, and Paul wants to make sure that these churches are set up for success, and what we mean by that is that they're set up to grow towards spiritual maturity. Towards health in the gospel, and one of those requirements for these churches to do well in in the long run, is that it has healthy, qualified leadership. And so, Paul, uh, uh, with that goal in mind, healthy churches over the long haul, uh, Paul unpacks to Titus. Here are the qualities of somebody that should serve as a pastor or an elder, and he tasks. Titus with the, with, the, with the job of appointing more pastors and elders in the churches throughout the island. Uh, and, then, and then he continues that thought, and here's what he says in verse 9. He says, he, speaking of uh, uh, somebody who will serve as a pastor, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he, the pastor, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Give it Now, really quick, give instruction to who? To the church. So this, so this is important for all of us to understand, right? Because the role of the pastor, the role of the elder, is to give instruction and sound doctrine to the church. And then he says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now this verse here reveals that one of the primary roles of a pastor is to be a minister of the word. A minister of the word, somebody who contends for the gospel, which is sound doctrine, and also confronts counterfeit gospels. Why is that important? Because a healthy church is a church that is built on the foundation of the word. That's Paul's vision. That's his goal for all these new churches popping up in Crete. Remember, he's got the long game in mind, right? He wants the churches to be healthy. He wants them to mature and to multiply. And if that's going to happen, then they need to be built on the foundation of the Word. A church living out the transforming grace of Jesus is a church that is always centered on the Word, centered on the Gospel of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that is something that you need to care about too. Not just Paul, not just Titus, not just these new churches. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's something that you need to care about. You need to to know, does the church that you belong to teach the word? Does the church you belong to teach sound doctrine? Do we contend for gospel truth? And are we willing to confront the counterfeits? And I know this language, again, of rebuking in verse 9 can kind of sound off-putting, but again, I want you to consider this morning that sometimes rebuking can be a compassionate thing. If it's a life or death situation. Have you ever had to go to, like, traffic school? Right? Yeah, me neither, Right? <laughs> Of course not no truthfully it's been like a really long time since I've had to go to traffic school but one of the things that if you remember like I don't know if they still do this was back uh, in the 90s the late 90s the last time that I went through uh, traffic school uh, uh, one of the things that they made you do is they would watch make you watch these videos of like these and pictures of these just gnarly accidents what can happen if you don't follow the rules of the road? What can happen if you're not mindful uh, and if you're not aware of what's going on around you when you're driving? You see like these pictures of burned vehicles and just these these these, these crazy uh, pictures. Why do they do that? Why do they put just these really uh, maybe uh, vulgar and offensive images in front of you at at a traffic school? Uh, class it's because they want to create caution in us they do that because it created caution in us to be careful now next time that we're on the road traffic school is a rebuke of sorts but in that context that rebuke is a good thing it's a caring thing to receive because it's for our good and it's also for the good of those around us Lives are at stake, and that's the heart that Paul here has when he writes to Titus, telling him to rebuke the false teachers, because Titus is overseeing all these new churches in Crete, and there are false teachings that have started to creep into these churches, and those false teachings need to be addressed. Paul is not okay with the fact that these teachings have have crept their way into the church, because souls are at stake. The spiritual health of these churches that he has a lot of affection for, being there from the very beginning. Their health is at stake. And he's not talking about some potential problem that could come down the road. He's bringing up a very real, clear, and present danger. A very real threat to the churches existing at the time. These counterfeit gospels that have already made their way into the church. Historically speaking... Before, like before the 20th century, before we had weapons of mass destruction, one of the primary ways that a nation or an empire that was at war with another nation or empire, one of the primary ways that, that they would destabilize their enemies is by spreading counterfeit money in that other enemy's nation. I mean you read about this, this is actually what the North did to the South in the Civil War. And it worked really well because the counterfeits resemble the real thing, but weakened the value of the real thing in the process. It's subtle, it's low-key. But over time it becomes so destructive because when when these counterfeits start to spread, when you you don't then you, you suddenly don't know how much your real currency is worth then the entire economy starts to fall apart. What if the greatest threat to Christianity and the health of our churches is not outside the church, but, but, but inside the church? What if it's not the anti-gospel messages outside the church, but the counterfeit gospels within the church? See, the bigger threat to the health of the church is not that there are anti-gospels outside the church, but counterfeit gospels within the church. Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament writers warn about this time and time and time again. That was the issue in Paul's day, in Titus's day, and it's still an issue in our day too. And so as we walk through the rest of this passage, I want you to hear Paul's pastoral heart. He's not trying to berate other people. He's not trying to shame people. He's, he's, he's after the good of these churches. He's after their witness in the world. He's a pastor who cares about the health of the church, which is something that hopefully we care about too this morning. right? So first thing, I want us to see what the rest of the passage is, we want to answer the question, What makes a counterfeit gospel? What? What makes a counterfeit gospel? Maybe what are the marks of of a counterfeit gospel? Uh, Read what what Paul says beginning in, in verse 10 now. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Paul says, look, I want you to to find men who can teach the word of God, who can hold fast to the word as taught, but can also rebuke those who contradict it. And then verse 10, he gives the reason. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Remember, this is a clear and present danger for Titus in Crete. Paul describes here in this verse, the beginning of verse 10, what makes this group of false teachers so dangerous that they are insubordinate they're empty talkers they're deceivers let's break those words down okay first he says he uses the word insubordinate your translation might say rebellious rebellious men It's this idea of somebody who's not submitting to authority an unwillingness to be under authority This is in direct contrast to what verse 9 says that a pastor elder should be. A pastor or an elder should be somebody who holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Somebody who clings to the word as it was taught by the apostles and taught by Jesus himself. A pastor does not have the liberty to deviate from the word of God. One of the marks of a counterfeit gospel is that the false teachers that are sort of peddling it seem to be under their own authority, seem to be on their own agenda with little to no concern to what the full counsel of God's word only says. Maybe they'll outright contradict God's word, or maybe they'll just pick and choose pieces of God's word to just 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 promote their own agenda, their own philosophical idea, their own political agenda, rather than teaching the full counsel of God's Word, His plan for hope and for peace in the world. I've, you, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say before that the moment, the moment that we, here at King's Cross Church, the people behind the pulpit, the moment that we stop. Preaching and teaching the word of God here at King's Cross is the moment that you need to find another church. That's why we're doing this. We gather on the Lord's Day to sing the word, to proclaim the word, to feast on the word in communion, the moment that the Word starts to make its way out of our songs, out of our preaching, out of the center of who we are as a local church, is the moment that you need to find another church. My job is not to come up here and to share with you uh, dreams and visions that, that I have to expound on my own ideas or philosophical leanings. That's not my job. My job is to Preach the word. That's what Paul tells Timothy uh, when he's he's writing a similar letter to his other disciple, Timothy. Preach the word. And it's not just for Timothy, it's for Titus. and All throughout the New Testament, we see that local churches need to be built on, established on the word. And so this is primary for Paul. And he says one of the marks of those who are false teachers is that they are insubordinate. They don't live under the authority of anyone or anything. Right? They kind of do their own thing. And then he goes on and he also calls them empty talkers. Empty talkers. Now that is a rich phrase. In the original Greek, it's one word. The root word, uh, matayalagos. Matayalagos. Now that, that word, that one word, which is translated into the two English empty talkers, uh, literally means those who say big, vain words, with empty, empty, vaporous content. I love that imagery. Empty, vaporous content. In other words, there's a whole lot of talk, but little to no substance in what they're saying. They might appear confident on the outside, a lot to show for. They might sound smooth in the pulpit, but there's no real substance to what they're saying because their teachings are full of lies. And so he also calls them deceivers. That the doctrine that they teach is not sound like verse 9 says it should be, but it's unsound. They're deceivers. What they're teaching is false. Because these guys, these cats, reject the authority of God's word. They might peddle big talk, big fancy talk, but they're deceivers in the end. They're leading people astray, away from the truth, away from goodness, away from beauty, as God defines it. And so ultimately, leading them away from Jesus. Look, that's the big tragedy of this. That's the big tragedy of this. You see, God is not a God who hides himself. He's revealed himself in the beauty of nature. He's revealed himself in the fact that our hearts long and want something more than what this broken world can offer us. He's revealed himself uh, in his word as it's been written and it's inspired throughout the ages. And he's revealed himself ultimately in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the gold standard of all that is true, good, and beautiful, the transcendental things that we all long for, truth, goodness, and beauty, is ultimately found in Christ. And the danger of false teachers is it begins to rewrite the story of what is truth, of what is good and satisfying, of what we should consider beautiful. It rewrites what the Bible says about that, and so it leads us not to Jesus, the way, the truth, and life, but away from him. And that's the big tragedy of these counterfeit gospels. And that's why Paul wants us to rebuke it, to call it out. He cares about the people and the churches in the region, and so he says, hold fast to the word as taught so that you can correct these people who are in error. And then he names a particular group that's wreaking havoc. He says at the end of verse verse 10, he says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And then he says especially those of the, he calls them the circumcision party, which admittedly is a strange combination of words. (laughs) As a general rule, if circumcision is on the agenda, that is not a party, right? Do not respond to that Evite. (laughs) Don't say I didn't warn you. But, seriously, like he's obviously not talking about like some fun party or celebration, but but he's talking about a group of people, right? Here he calls them the the circumcision party and other parts of the scriptures. They're referenced as the Judaizers, and other books of the Bible. And this is a group of 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 people uh, that were former Jews. Uh, that have now started to believe in parts of the gospel, but they were infiltrating the ranks of the church, and they taught people that if you really, truly want to follow Jesus, then you got to follow some of these old covenant laws that we've always been following, some of our old traditions about what you can and can't eat, about what you can and cannot wear, about whether you should or should not be married, and about how you needed to be circumcised like Abraham if you're a man, if you wanted to truly be in the family of God, if you truly wanted to please God. Now, why does any of this matter to us today? Because there's there's no circumcision party uh, today, so why does this matter? It's because the basic error of the Judaizers of the circumcision party was the error of legalism. And we still see legalism everywhere in the church today. Legalism is essentially the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping. In other words, if we keep all the right rules, then and only then will God accept me and consider me part of his inner crowd. In the same way that the circumcision party was devoting themselves to these Jewish myths outside of the Scriptures and imposing them onto others through their teachings, some people and some churches today might take commands that are extra-biblical and say, hey look, unless you follow our rules and our customs and our traditions, you won't be allowed into our fellowship. It's when a church requires something beyond the teaching of Scripture. to be clear it is not legalism it's not legalistic to teach ethics and morality from the scriptures right it's not legalism it's not legalistic to teach ethics and morality from the scriptures like some some people are like are are like no like i i mean i don't i don't want to like be too strict in following God's rule to, 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 to not sleep with whoever I want, right? Like, I don't want to be too strict with that because I don't want to be legalistic about it. I don't want to be cold and rigid about it. It's like, no, that's not being legalistic. That's just you making up excuses to do whatever the heck you want, right? Like, legalism is not obeying the scriptures. Where it gets diocese is when you actually require things beyond the scriptures, and impose that on others and say, "Hey, look, it's either when you impose things on others and say, like, "Hey, look, unless you follow these extra things, then God won't accept you," or legalism is also believing that how, how much God accepts you is based on how obedient that you are, the matter of the heart. right? So that's why Paul wanted to get trained, qualified elders appointed in these churches because these deceivers were making their way into the church and teaching this counterfeit gospel. This counterfeit gospel that says Jesus plus anything. Anything else. Jesus plus this other thing is what what helps you get receive God's grace. But Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are accepted by grace alone, through Christ alone, his perfect life, his substitutionary death where he took on and absorbed God's wrath in our place for our sins, his triumphant resurrection from the tomb, and the fact that we can get all the benefits of that resurrection purely by faith. If anyone says there is anything in addition to that, that you need in order to gain God, then that is a false gospel. That is a counterfeit gospel. That is not the real deal. And ironically, if you do Jesus plus anything, it won't give you more of Jesus. It will actually turn you away from Jesus. This is, brings us to the point number two. Why do we confront counterfeit gospels? We confront them because they're destructive. They devalue the actual gospel. Like those counterfeit notes and currencies we talked about earlier in our introduction. They're destructive. They devalue the actual gospel. If you believe that in addition to knowing Jesus and walking in His ways, that you need to also follow a list of extra rules in order to please God then that makes Jesus a little less your Savior and yourself a little more your own Savior. Does that make sense? You see, this circumcision party instead insisted that you abstain from certain things that God in the Scripture says is okay. They said, hey, if you do these righteous things from our our customs, then and only then will God upset, upset you, accept you. That's like trying to sand off your faults. Trying to sand off your faults as if the problem with us is on the outside and not on the inside. You see, we're drawn to this, we're drawn to this counterfeit because it's safe and it's simple and it makes us kind of feel awesome about ourselves. Hey, the problem's the problem's not in me, it's outside of me, right? But that's a false understanding of sin and what it means to be pure. Paul presses this point further down in verse 15 if you read that with me in verse 15 he says to the pure all things are pure but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure for both their minds and their consciences are defiled you see in this verse Paul is highlighting the power of the gospel one commentator points out that the first time this letter was read in public, people would have probably gasped out loud at this particular verse, at verse 15, because of how just counterintuitive it is to our self-righteous sensibilities. You see, it's counterintuitive because we think if something is pure, then almost anything that can contain can taint it and make it unpure. Right? If something's pure, then almost anything that's blemished can taint it or stain it. But Paul is saying that the transforming work of Jesus is so powerful. The transforming work of Jesus is so different than anything else that if, that if, that if your behavior is naturally flowing from your faith, from your belief in Christ's finished work, then nothing can make what you do impure. If you're doing it in faith, Paul's highlighting the inside-out nature of the gospel. He's drilling down what Jesus got at in Mark chapter 7, verse 7, or just verse 15. When Jesus was teaching, and he said, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's actually the things that come out of a person, in other words, the things that are already inside a person are what defile him. You see, we tend to think that we're just naturally really good and we have bad influences on the outside that make us bad. But Jesus says, no, it's not what's outside of you, but what's inside of you that defiles you. Real transformation happens from the inside out. The Judaizers, on the other hand, They were teaching that acceptance from God comes to you by fixing your outside first. That's the problem with the counterfeit gospel. It devalues who Jesus is. It devalues the gospel. It devalues his power and his purpose in your life and mine. It devalues who he is as Lord and as Savior. And they were teaching, it says, these false teachers, they were teaching for selfish gain. Selfish gain. Look at verse 11. It says that they must, Paul says, they must be silenced. These false teachers must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. And as I was studying, I discovered that scholars think that what these people were doing was gaining, they were gaining a reputation in the church with their smooth words and fancy talk and and, and extra teachings. They were kind of wooing people in, gaining a reputation with the people in the church, and then soliciting money from them for their own personal gain. That's not unlike many churches today. That's not unlike many New York Times best-selling Christian authors today. That's not unlike the prosperity gospel preachers of our day. How many of you guys are familiar with what we call the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel teaches God wants everyone to be physically healthy, to be materially wealthy, and to be personally happy all the time. That is God's ultimate goal for us. And if you want in on that, prosperity gospels preachers teach, if you want in on that, then you just got to do these things that we tell you to. You got to have big faith. You got to give us big money. And man, this is a wildly popular version of Christianity in the 21st century. The only problem is, it's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. I mean, it's it's wild how prosperity preachers always end up in the top Christian bestseller book lists. People don't have discernment because they're not informed by the real thing. They're not informed by the word of God. These bestsellers, they're marketing a counterfeit gospel straight from the pit of hell. The message of Scripture, though, is not that when you follow Jesus, everything will 100% go right for you. That is not the message of Scripture. right? If you bought a book that tells you that, that book is wrong right? The message of scriptures, the message of the gospel is not that when you follow Jesus, everything will 100% go right for you, but that even when things don't go right in our jacked up and broken world, he is still enough. He is sufficient for you no matter what happens. The prosperity gospel is a complete disregard for scripture and of church history. I mean, man, when you look at the scriptures, you see that, man, oh, Christians they suffer sometimes they lose it all for their faith the apostles the men who started the original like OG church planners that we read about in the new testament most of these guys were murdered martyred for preaching the risen jesus hung on a cross dangled by the neck, boiled in a vat of oil. That's what happened to the Apostle John. He was boiled, and, 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 he, and he, his, his, uh, it didn't quite kill him, and so they banished him on, on an island to, to, to live with his, with his wounds. Prosperity Gospel has a complete disregard for the Scriptures and of church history. Man, read church history what the faithful saints have gone through in order to preserve the word of God, preach the message of hope and peace to the world, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is enough. He is enough. So we pray for healing, and God may heal. We give and we pray. God will provide, but it's not normative for him to make you extremely wealthy. But even in our lack, even in our lack of health, and our lack of material resources, even in our lacking, we can say Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. But for some of the people in these Cretan churches, they were buying into the madness that was being taught. They were buying into the empty talk and the deception, and families were getting torn apart because of it. And it's not just something that Paul describes happening in Titus 1. It's something that Jesus warned of in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, verse 15 and 16, He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. You see, that's why we need to confront counterfeit gospels. They destroy. To borrow a phrase from Jesus, they ravage people, it destroys communities, it destroys whole households when you believe that your salvation depends on your performance rather than on Christ's performance, when you believe that your salvation depends on your faithfulness rather than Christ's faithfulness, you know what that does? It breeds competition, judgment, resentment, Hatred, cynicism. And these things will destroy any community. And it destroys families. It destroys families. Paul cares about these people. He cares about this church. And he says, man, you got to call these people out. People are getting harmed. Families are getting torn apart it destroys false teaching. Also, it, dest- it destroys character, too. Look at what he says in verse 12 and 13. He says, One of the Cretans, Paul says one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, from the island of Crete, once said, Cretans are always liars, evil ble- beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he says, this testimony is true. Paul's being smart here. He's like, hey, look, their guy said it, not me. Right? But I'm telling you, like what he said, I've seen it generally be true. Like Cicero, Cicero uh, also stated the moral principles are so divergent. He wrote this in the first century. He says moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. You rob somebody by lot. Man, you get a gold star in Crete. They watched the old westerns and rooted for the guy in the black hat like every time. And later in verse 16, it says, They profess to know God, and they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's Paul's conclusion for these false teachers. He's like, you know, they profess to know God on the outside, but man, what's going on inside and in the fruit of their lives? They deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any true work, any good work. That's his conclusion for these people. These false teachers are unfit for any good work. They lead people away from the truth, away from Jesus, and lead them toward death. False teaching cannot deliver on its promises to bring peace to the world. And it also distracts from the real life-giving message that does bring peace. And that's why they need to be confronted, these counterfeit gospels. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Look, I get that this word, this rebuke word is uncomfortable. I get it. Like you're still called to love and honor and serve and bless and identify with those around you. We don't talk down on people, but to them. We don't talk shame, we don't shame people or talk down on them, but we talk to them as fellow beggars in need of grace. That's why important to point out that Paul's goals for these false teachers to be, he says, sound in the faith strong in the faith. We might think rebuking is a contradiction of love, but it's actually, in the right context, it can be an expression of love. Remember Paul's goal. He wants them to be sound in the faith. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I want these, these people, these, these, these deceivers with these empty talkers, I want them to come to true saving faith. He cares about them. He wants them to be converted. He wants them, these false teachers, to meet the real Jesus. He says, rebuke them, challenge them, so that they can be converted. And that should be our heart too. That should be our heart too. We want people to stand firm on the sturdy foundation of the gospel, not on shaky ground. It's not about shaming others. It's not about berating others. If that's your posture, then, man, this, the man the like, Check your heart first. It's about bringing people from death to life. It's about freeing, liberating people from their idols and turning them towards the freedom and hope and peace of Jesus. That's why we need to confront the counterfeit Gospels. Admittedly, some people are a little trigger happy, right? Right? Like they feel like it's their personal calling to constantly point out the faults in everyone around you, right? Like that person, if that's you this morning, then, then you, what you need is to learn to love and to serve when speaking truth and love. Because if all you do is challenge people, if that's all that you do is challenge people, then you fail to communicate God's heart and purpose, on the other hand, some are maybe too shy to confront harmful teaching. But if you love someone, you've got to be willing to correct them. Every parent knows that. You see, if you only affirm someone in their idols, then you fail to communicate God's truth and justice. This is why Mark Dever gives us warning In his book on healthy churches, he says one of the most important things that any pastor or elder will do for you is something that you may never notice. It is not visiting hospitals, successful leading a church to expand its budget, or ensuring that his sermons have clear outlines, all of which are good things. It is this, working hard to know scripture in order to protect you from false teachings which are useless, of no benefit, dangerous and divisive in the church. See, this is important for the health of a church. This is important for the long game of a church plan. That its leaders are committed to contending for truth and to confronting untruth. And so it's important for you to know, if King's Cross Church is your church home, it's important for you to know that people can't just preach whatever they want here. All right, so as, 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 as a founding pastor of this, of this church, like I'm committed to making sure that anyone who stands behind this pulpit, the resources that we recommend to you, all the studies that we do are sound in the faith. We're committed to that. Look, it requires love and hope and courage and bravery to be willing to have difficult conversations with friends or people that we know that are false teachers for the sake of their soul and for the sake of the souls around us. It takes courage and bravery to have those conversations, but with that courage and bravery, we also need to have love and kindness, grace. So lastly, quickly as we close, how can we discern a counterfeit gospel? How can we discern a counterfeit gospel? You go back to verse 9. It's by knowing the real thing. Knowing, holding fast to the real thing, being passionately committed to God's revealed truth. He says in verse 9, remember, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You want to know how to discern a counterfeit gospel? You got to be so well acquainted with the real thing. With the real gospel story, with the real gospel announcement. Quick story: In 1985, uh, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles uh, purchased for 10 million dollars a statue. It's an archaic Greek uh, Kouros, which is a statue of like a young a young man, uh, that was thought to be from the sixth century. Pretty pretty rare specimen, but it was debunked uh, a little more than a year later as fake. The thing is, it passed all initial inspections. After all the initial inspections, the statue was proudly displayed at the Getty for everyone to see. It made it into national newspapers, this rare specimen that was on display at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. But some experts doubted both before and after the unveiling, whether this was real or not, actually from the 6th century. Some experts noticed what seemed to be a mix of styles from different time periods, all in the same statue. A former Met director uh, in New York uh, was, was quoted saying, I had dug in Sicily where we found bits and pieces of statues just like this. And they don't come out looking like that. The cross looked like it had been dipped he said, in a cafe latte from Starbucks. (laughs) Another museum director from Athens took one look at it and blurted out to the critic next to him, anyone who's ever seen a sculpture coming out of the ground could tell that that thing has never been in the ground. It took these experts a quick moment to see and to discern what others took months over a year to figure out. It was from being so familiar with the authentic that they immediately were able to discern a counterfeit. It was from being so familiar with, with studying and handling the real thing that they were able to, to discern and detect the false thing. And so what do you do when you spend $10 million on a statue that's debunked as fake a year later? You do what the Getty did. You put a fancy plaque and put, date, 530 B.C. or modern forgery. (laughs) You can actually look at it in the Getty catalog today. Look it up online. Like it says, 530 B.C. or modern forgery. All you got to do is dig up the news articles from 1985 and 86 to find the story behind the modern for, forgery. You see, Paul's, Paul's spirit-inspired vision for the churches in Crete was that they would be so familiar, so familiar, so acquainted with the Word of God and the gospel of their Lord Jesus Christ that they would immediately be able to detect any false gospels in their midst. They'd be so uh, familiar with the real thing that they'd be immediately able to detect a counterfeit. Those of us who are believers this morning, I want us to pray and labor to have that kind of familiarity with the Word of God. I want us to pray for a greater desire for the Word, to become so familiar with it, so acquainted with it, where we handle it so often and so well that we can perceive any threats to what it says. Some of us need to recognize the drift in our hearts for a Jesus plus, a Jesus plus type of Christianity. Where maybe it's like, hey, Jesus plus my favorite Bible translation, Jesus plus my particular parenting style, Jesus plus my political views. Jesus plus whatever it is for you, recognize that there's a tendency in all of us to be enamored by and drawn to Jesus plus Christian, a Jesus plus type of Christianity. It can be good things that we're drawn to, but those things are not what makes you righteous. Jesus alone gives you that. And there are some of us here this morning that are maybe feeling impure and undefiled like these Cretan teachers are described. And if that's you this morning, let me further encourage you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that although we are born as fallen, sinful, broken, rebellious creatures, out of love for us, out of love for undeserving us, God adopted us into His family through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that good news is free for you it's free for you you don't have to grow in godliness in order to receive that gospel it's actually the other way around you grow in godliness because you've already been accepted in that gospel it's amazing grace You see, the good news in this text is that it's not about our faithfulness, but it's about Jesus' faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his purity. It's about his love for sinners like you and like me. And so when we see that gospel, man, we want to contend for it. We want to steadfast hold firm to it we want to protect ourselves and each other from any threats to the life and hope and peace that that gospel brings us
0: thank you for listening to the king's cross church podcast we'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering if you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.